Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll be reading verse 1 and 2. We'll focus primarily on verse 2 together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 is a letter written by the Apostle Peter under the direct inspiration and guiding hand of the Spirit of God so that every word is, comes from God. It's a blessing to have uh, the Scriptures. Um, and as I read this passage for you again, uh, may God help us all to listen in faith and in reverence for the reading of God's Holy Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, Peter begins this epistle by writing to believers that he refers to as chosen pilgrims or chosen aliens or elect exiles. You can say it in different ways. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, which in this passage, since it's God's foreknowledge of people that He has chosen. It refers to that special knowledge that God has before time of those whom He has chosen in covenant love. He foreknows them from before the foundation of the world. But the elect who have been chosen still need to be brought to saving faith. And the next phrases in verse 2 actually explain to us how God brings His chosen ones to salvation. And all of these descriptions, at least the next two, uh, are the work of the Spirit to convert the chosen and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this is to show that not only has God ordained the ends of choosing His elect to be saved, but also the means by which He saves them. And that's what verse 2 will basically explain to us. This is going to help us to understand, I believe, uh, the grace of God and why we need to understand it because it helps to give us courage to sustain us in times of difficulties and trials. And it should also fill us with a thankful heart when we see the magnitude of God's grace that has brought us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So let's begin uh, examining this again at the end of verse 1. He describes his readers as being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So they've been chosen, they've been elected, and then he adds to that how he begins the work of actually saving them in time. They were chosen before time in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now He begins to bring them to salvation in time. 
So how does He do that? Well, first, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Well, this is a probably a reference to what God is doing in bringing someone to faith. This is a word of sanctification which has different nuances and meanings. The very basic understanding of sanctification is to set something apart for God's service or God's use. This explains why we are pilgrims and aliens because we have been called out of this world. We've been set apart from the world chosen by God for God. We are the church, the called out one. So we have been set apart by the Lord to live for Christ. Jesus said in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. So because we have been chosen by God out of the world to live for God, The world therefore will hate us. And a lot of this letter is dealing with the persecution and the suffering that results from the world hating those who have been called out and separated, sanctified unto God. There's a natural animosity between those two groups. Thus, God chose us to be pilgrims and aliens. And this was brought to pass by the work of the Holy Spirit, setting us apart from the world And putting us into a new community of the called out ones or the church. Now notice in this, who does the sanctifying work? It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is the the role of the Spirit of God. To actually set us apart. Now that's probably why the Spirit, more so than the Father or the Son in the Holy Trinity, is described as the Holy Spirit. Not because the Spirit is holier than the Father or the Son, but He's the Holy Spirit because it's His ministry to make things holy, to set things apart. It's uniquely the role of the Spirit to do that. So the Holy Spirit not only says the Spirit is holy, but also His work is to make things holy, to set them apart for the glory of God. Now again, what is this sanctifying work? Normally when we think of sanctification, what do we normally think of? We think of that gradual work of God where He makes us more like Christ, kind of the the progression of the Christian life where we're gradually sanctified we become uh, more dedicated to the Lord we become more like Jesus Christ more obedient we grow in those things progressive sanctification that's normally what we think of I don't think that's what's being referred to here a second understanding of the word sanctification found in the New Testament is not the gradual growth in the Christian life but positional sanctification. For example, the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the church at Corinth, speaks to the believers and he says, describes them as those who have been sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. 
You've been sanctified. Not an ongoing process, but a completed event. In other words, the saints have been set apart unto God. That is our position. We are sanctified in Christ. That's the second way this this word is used. But there's a third way, and I think this is really what's involved here in verse 2. And that's the focus on the beginning work of the Holy Spirit to set apart God's chosen ones or God's elect for the special work of the Spirit in bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when Peter is saying you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that begins a process of God bringing the elect actually to know Jesus Christ in saving faith. The Spirit of God, it's His work, begins to set apart the chosen one, the elect, who's not yet saved, but the Spirit of God sets them apart for special operations to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. So, And I think this is, fits well with this particular context. That Peter is referring to the Spirit's work to irresistibly, effectually draw the elect into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now that could be somewhat of a process of convicting them of sin, wrestling with them, they're miserable in their life, they just don't... They're not happy. They're, they're just wrestling with the weight of their sin, giving them this, this conviction. But ultimately, that sanctifying work of the Spirit will consummate in the work of regeneration. Where the Spirit of God takes out that heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh, and now suddenly the lights come on. Suddenly they realize that they're a sinner, that Jesus Christ alone can save them. And what, what's happening is the Spirit of God is setting them apart and working His grace into their heart and soul so that they will eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when that work of regeneration happens again, they will respond in repentance and faith. Peter goes on and refers to some of this in the next verse when he says, God, according to His great mercy, has caused you to be born again to a living hope. So that's God through the Spirit is setting the elect apart and beginning to give them grace to draw them, to convict them, to give them the the desire to want to be saved. And that consummates again in the work of regeneration. The Lord says it's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And until the Spirit actually imparts that life into that spiritually dead soul, we will only resist the Gospel, we will refuse the Gospel, we will rebel against the Gospel. But when God changes the heart, He liberates us from the bondage to our sin nature. He sets us free. For before we're slaves to sin, our will is a, is a slave to our bad heart. And we'll always hear, when we hear the gospel, we'll always say, no, not for me, not now. Maybe another time. I'm not that interested. We're still in bondage to our sin nature. But when the Spirit of God sets us apart and eventually regenerates us, infuses spiritual life into our previously spiritually dead heart, suddenly we see. And we want to be forgiven. 
And we know that only Jesus Christ can forgive us. And the Spirit empowers our will and our minds and our heart through that new heart to actually call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. A great example of this was back in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Paul was preaching the gospel to Lydia. She was not responding in faith. She heard the gospel, interested maybe. Learn a little more, but not responding in faith. And then it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that Paul was preaching. Then she responded. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Setting apart Lydia, one of His chosen ones, to actually come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now again, this work of this sanctifying work of the Spirit, again, which consummates in the work of regeneration or the new birth, is something that only God can do because only God can change the heart. Remember, Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus that unless you're born from above, you can't see the kingdom of God. Born again or born from above. In other words, it's from heaven that that new birth must be given. And then later on in verse 5, he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the Spirit. You've got to be born of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. So that's, the, that's part of this sanctifying work of the Spirit, I think, that Peter is referring to here in verse 2. Now, the Spirit of God often does this work of setting apart and convicting and regenerating and giving repentance and faith. He does that work under the radar. Something that we're not, all, we're not consciously aware of. All we sense is maybe the conviction, the desires, but we don't realize that it's the Spirit of God that's actually producing that within us. We don't discern His inside work. We just feel it or experience it. But we don't really realize that it's God's Spirit that's actually bringing that to pass. It's very similar to God's work in uh, inspiration of the Bible. So when Paul or Peter or Moses, any of the authors of Scripture, were writing the Bible, God didn't put them in a trance and just kind of move their arm up and have them write the Scriptures or God didn't say to Paul, Paul, get, get that quill and then get that parchment next to you. Now, now write down exactly what I'm going to tell you. And they write it down. That's not the way it happened. Paul or Peter or whoever's writing the Scripture has a burden on his heart. He's concerned for a church. He's concerned for believers. And he begins to write down these words. And his mind and his will is choosing the words. And he's putting it all together. And he's writing it down. But what he doesn't realize is that it's the Spirit of God that is supernaturally moving him to write that letter. So that, as Peter will say in Second Peter, that basically these were men moved by the Spirit of God. And they spoke from God. They were moved by the Spirit of God. They didn't know they were being moved by the Spirit of God. They were probably just writing what was heavy on their hearts. And as they wrote it down, they didn't realize that under the radar, under the surface, the Spirit of God was guiding them in the choice of every single word that they wrote. 
That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's the Spirit of God moving wills and moving minds to select words that the, the authors probably just thought it came from them. But it was really being moved by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit can work under our senses to guide us, our wills, our minds, our hearts. And that's similar to the work of the Spirit in conversion. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. So that when the authors of Scripture, when Peter wrote his letter, it's as if God Himself had spoken the very words. But he probably didn't realize it. He probably just wrote. And in conversion, that's the same thing. We don't hear voices from heaven. We don't hear God come up and say, well, now I'm going to change your heart. Okay, you'll feel a little, little pinch here. Or anything like that. He works under our senses. He works invisibly and and irresistibly in our will and our heart to draw us to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's kind of like when I was a kid, our family took a vacation, went down to Galveston, and my brother and I went out into the water. The 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 uh, what do you call it? What's the Gulf of Mexico? There we go. <laughs> Can't even remember what, where we went. But we were out there for about an hour, and after an hour, my brother and I, you know, we're tired, we're ready to come back out and eat lunch or whatever. So we, we got out of the water and we looked around. We didn't recognize anything. We didn't know where in the world we were. And what we didn't realize was that there was a parallel current of the water that was moving us down the coastline, and every time our feet came off the bottom, that current was moving us, and we didn't even know it was happening. And we were probably moved down maybe three fourths or a mile, and we had to, you know, we were scared because we came out of the water, didn't recognize anything, had to walk all the way back down, finally found our parents. And that's the way the Spirit of God moves when He saves one of His chosen ones. They oftentimes don't realize what the Spirit of God, they just feel the effects of it. And that's, again, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It consummates in regeneration. And once that old heart is taken out and the new heart is put in to the elect, suddenly they repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So, Paul, sorry, Peter, has described them as chosen or elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is how now the Father is going to save the elect by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then the next phrase, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. There's a progression of here. Moving them to salvation, to saving faith. So the sanctifying work of the Spirit results in their obedience to Jesus Christ. That phrase from the New American Standard, to obey Jesus Christ, in the Greek, the little preposition, implies a result. So obeying Jesus Christ is the result of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. When the Spirit begins to move on the elect, begins to set them apart, works grace into them, it results in them obeying Jesus Christ. 
Without this work of the Spirit, we will be continually rebelling against Christ, rebelling against the Gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he cannot even understand them because they're spiritually appraised. In other words, it takes the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God for any sinner to begin to understand the, the, the dangerous condition they're in. They are sinners and guilty of sin in the presence of a holy God. And one day they'll stand before God as their judge. It takes the Spirit of God to make someone realize the danger that they are in and their need to repent and believe in Jesus. Otherwise, well, you know, who cares? Yeah, I don't believe in a coming judgment anyway. It's the Spirit of God that gives that conviction. And if the Spirit is not working again, people could care less. Now, the obedience that's referenced here to obey Jesus Christ is probably a reference to the obedience of faith. Initial faith in the Gospel. Now, now also, it, it will result in ongoing obedience in the Christian life. But here, it follows the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and then be sprinkled with the blood, be forgiven. So I think the obedience here is the obedience of faith. Or initial faith in Jesus Christ rather than the ongoing obedience of the Christian life, which is also a part of it as well. So, to obey Jesus Christ then means to obey the gospel command to repent and believe. So, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they hear the gospel and they believe they're obeying the gospel. That's obedience. Remember in Acts 17, verse 30, Paul's preaching to the Athenians. And he says, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a command. Now, with the Gospel, we give an invitation to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but it's also a command. He commands all men everywhere to repent. John, in his first epistle, 1 John 3.23, said this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's His commandment. So the Gospel is not only an invitation, it's also a command. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 1 said that, you know, I've received grace and apostleship from God to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for His namesake. The obedience of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. The obedience of faith. So, it's my uh, conviction that here in verse 2, when he says to obey Jesus Christ, he's talking primarily about that initial obedience to the Gospel of Repenting and putting your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. So the sanctifying work of the Spirit results in saving faith. Now, turn if you will real quick to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because Paul writes something which is very similar 
to what Peter has just written. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So again, God has chosen them, not because they were saved, but for salvation, in order to save them. But how is He saving them? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Almost the same language that Peter uses. God has chosen them. They're chosen aliens according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, the obedience of faith. Very similar language and concepts. Same progression that Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Now, of course, that initial obedience doesn't stop there. It continues as the Spirit of God continues His work of practical and progressive sanctification. And our obedience later on is evidence that our faith is real and genuine. It's also a key part of our assurance of salvation. So, the result of the Holy Spirit sanctifying the elect is that we obey Jesus Christ by believing the Gospel. And then that results in turn in our forgiveness. So, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, setting us apart for His special ministry and grace and operation to obey Jesus Christ. To come to faith, to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ. And then what's the result of that? And be sprinkled with His blood. Be sprinkled with His blood. Now this is another interesting uh, expression. What does it refer to? It's not sprinkled with water, it's sprinkled with His blood. And probably what is in the background of Peter's mind is Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Now what's happening there is Moses is at Mount Sinai. He's gone up and he's received the law from God. He's come down and he's read the law to the people. And the people say, everything that you have told us, Moses, we will do. Now that's a bald-faced lie, but they had good intentions at the time. But they say, everything that God has said, we will do. So, Moses builds an altar. And then he takes all these animals and he sacrifices them for burnt offerings, young bulls as peace offerings. And he takes half of the blood and he sprinkles it on the altar. And the other half of the blood, he goes out and he sprinkles it on the people. Now what was that symbolizing? Well, under the Old Covenant, it symbolized two things. Number one, their symbolism of their cleansing from their impurity and their sin. And secondly, that they were also now being ushered into that covenant. They were now in the covenant. So the sprinkling of the blood symbolized forgiveness and entrance into the covenant. Now, the way Peter is using it, 
I think he's applying that from the background of the old covenant, but now he's bringing it up into the new covenant. Moses was the mediator of that covenant. But now Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant, which He inaugurated by His blood on the cross once for all time. The sprinkling of the blood of Christ on these believers here in verse 2 is not literal. It's symbolic again, but it represents their cleansing totally from their sins and their entrance by faith into the new covenant where they have a new relationship with God. So this is what we have. We have the chosen who are now have the sanctifying work of the Spirit working in them to bring them to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ to believe the Gospel and be sprinkled with His blood. To be forgiven of all of their sins through faith in in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Peter is using this metaphor borrowed from the sprinkling of the Old Testament. But it represents through faith in Jesus Christ, we are totally cleansed. We are forgiven of all of our sins. And we have also been brought into the new covenant. Not the old covenant with Moses, but through the new mediator, the new covenant through Jesus Christ. So we've been sprinkled with His blood. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of the precious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, so that now our sins are totally forgiven and we are members in the new covenant. Where before we were excluded from God, now the veil has been torn asunder and we have direct access into the very throne room of God Almighty. And all this this expression that you've been sprinkled with His blood You've been forgiven. You've been brought into the new covenant. All that this symbolism indicates that the blood of Christ on the cross was totally sufficient. Completely able to remove all of our debt owed to God because of our sin. The fact that we've been sprinkled with His blood indicates that we've been totally and completely forgiven of all of our sins, that the debt, the penalty, the suffering, the pain that we deserve in hell for our sin has been totally borne by our Savior. And now we've been sprinkled with that blood. Figuratively, our sins are covered. And though they they were as scarlet, now they are white as snow. We've been totally forgiven. We've been accepted because the Lamb was rejected He was punished in our place, bearing our sins, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve. So that when you come to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ, then you've been sprinkled with His blood. Your sins are taken away. And you're a member of His covenant with all the blessings that come through that. If you look at verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter will return to this amazing concept in verse 18 he says knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ you've been sprinkled with his blood Not the blood of all the animals that couldn't take away our sin, but the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. 
And later in chapter 2, verse 24, He'll say, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. So when the chosen are sanctified by the Spirit and set apart for His effectual grace to work in their hearts, the result is they respond in obedience to the Gospel call and they believe in Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that they are forgiven by Christ's blood and they have a new position in the new covenant that Christ inaugurated on the cross. And then Peter concludes verse 2 by saying, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace is one of the typical Greek greetings, but obviously it's been brought up to a higher understanding in the New Testament. Grace is... You could understand it as the fountain from which all of God's blessings flow to us that we do not deserve. That's His grace. Someone wants to use the letters of the word grace to summarize its meaning as God's riches at Christ's expense. Not bad. The grace of God is never merited. It's never earned. It's always unmerited favor from God giving to us all that we need to come to faith in Jesus Christ and to live for Him. Grace is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't, and we certainly don't deserve it. Grace is God's free favor. Grace is God's sovereign kindness. And Peter says, Oh God, for whoever reads this letter, God, would You give them grace? They need grace. However much of it they have today, oh God, give them more grace to the fullest measure. They need more grace. Oh God, give them more. Give them what they need. We're chosen by grace. We're saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. One day we'll be glorified by grace. Oh God, give them more of Your grace. Your unmerited mercy and favor and power and blessing. Give that to them. And then to grace He prays, Oh God, give them peace. This would be from the Jewish side of a greeting from Shalom, but again raised to a much higher mark. Peter assumes that they have already have as believers justification with God. That is, for we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The enmity has been done away. Now we're friends with God. We have peace with God through the blood of Christ. They already have that. Can't lose it. It's a gift of God. Whenever a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they have peace with God right at that moment. They're justified. They're reconciled. What they probably still need though is the peace of God. That inner calm that God gives to His people. The sense that all is well because our God who loves us and saved us is on His sovereign throne in heaven. And all authority and power and dominion has been entrusted to Him and this is the God who watches over me. 
This is a God who loves me. This is a God who's in control of, of all the circumstances of my life and promises to work all things together for good. Oh God, give them more of that peace. That inner confidence that You're a sovereign God. That You do work all things in such a way that it will bring You glory and actually be a blessing to us for our good, whether we realize it at the time or not. So that even in our storms of life, this peace of God can reign just as Christ in the boat appeared to be asleep when the storm waves were crashing on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they're concerned they're going to die. And someone said, wake up, Jesus. Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus stood up in the boat and commanded the waves and the winds to hush, be still. And they immediately bowed down to Him. And that's that peace that we can have in the midst of the storms of life. And that's probably the peace that Peter has most in mind. Because he knows how often our boats enter into the troubled seas. Troubled waters. Chaos. Confusion. Storms. And oftentimes we get weighed down with the stress and the worry and the fear. We don't understand. And we need God's peace. That's why Paul could encourage us to be anxious for nothing. But through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think that's what he's praying. Oh God, these believers are being persecuted. They're suffering. Grant them your peace. Fill them with that inner calm that they know that you're with them. That you will never leave them. You'll never forsake them. And Lord, just bring your peace into their hearts. That, that calm of knowing your love, your presence, your grace is always with them. And Peter is asking that God would give His grace and peace and multiply it in abundance upon His chosen ones. And this just reflects Peter's heart for the people that he was writing to. No matter how much grace and peace they have, he's praying for God to give them more. Is that your prayer too? Do you pray that for yourself? Do you pray it for others? Oh God, give them grace. Give them peace. It's a great example to follow. In verse 2, we have a testimony to the Trinity. You have the Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, and the blood of the Son of God forgives. What a great verse. There's two applications in closing I want to make. These believers need to know these truths. They need to know the magnitude of the grace of God that has saved them and chosen them and provided the only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to forgive them of their sins. They need to know that. They need to know that the Spirit has sanctified them. That it's all a work of His grace. Because that builds our confidence in God in difficult times. It's God's grace to us that conforms us more to the image of Christ and can show us and give us the, the love and grace to even 
love and pray for our enemies, even those who persecute us. This kind of knowledge of God's grace towards us is something that can encourage me to to sacrifice for other people. As Christ commanded His disciples to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And when we understand the magnitude and the depth of God's grace towards us, it can help us show that love and mercy to others even who hate us. Edmund Clowney, one of the commentators, recounts the testimony of Armando Valadares, who spent 22 years in Castro's prisons in Cuba. By the way, that's why when Cubans come to America, they don't want to have anything to do with socialism or communism because they know what that does to a country. And these people understand that. But this... Armando was 22 years in Castro's prisons. And it finally came to the day that he was going to be released after 22 years. And as he was about ready to walk out the the prison gates, he recalled one of his most profound memories of just the torture and the beatings that they had to endure and also the witness of one of the brethren in prison as he was about to be executed, that left a deep impression upon him. And this is what he wrote. He said, in the midst of that apocalyptic experience of the most dreadful and horrifying moments of my life, in the midst of the gray, ashy dust and orgy of beatings and blood, prisoners beaten to the ground, a man emerged the skeletal figure of a man wasted by hunger with white hair but blazing blue eyes and a heart overflowing with love, raising his arms to the invisible heaven above and pleading for mercy for his executioners. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And then a burst of machine gun fire ripped open his chest. What gives someone that kind of love and mercy to the very ones who are about to take his life? It's understanding the grace of God that we have received that we will not endure what we deserve in hell But God has saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ and chosen and called us into fellowship with Himself. It's that kind of grace that will move us to deny ourselves and love other people and seek to bring the Gospel to those who don't have it. That's part of the power of this introduction. To understand who we are and what we have received by the grace of God and being chosen and sanctified to obey Christ in faith and be forgiven of all of our sins. And then finally, another application is how thankful should we be that God has chosen to save us? I don't know why God chose you. I have no idea why He chose me. I mean, I know what I deserve. And I deserve at this moment to be burning in hell forever. That's what I believe. 
And yet God has shown mercy. I don't understand it. But how thankful should we be that God's electing love and sanctifying grace of His Spirit has pulled me into the obedience of faith that I might be forgiven. Again, that verse we referenced earlier, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Did you catch it? How Paul began that verse? It says, but we should always give thanks to God. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, we should always give thanks to God. When was the last time you bowed your head and just said, Oh God, thank You for saving me from my sin. Thank You, Oh God, for delivering me from Your just wrath that I deserve. Thank You, thank You, thank You for saving my soul. Let us not be like those nine lepers. Christ cleansed ten of them. And only one came back and fell on his face before Jesus Christ and thanked Him and praised Him for the gift of the cleansing of His leprosy. And yet we have suffered from a far worse disease. A far more deadly and dangerous disease of sin. And yet we have been cleansed. And should we not come back to Jesus Christ and just thank Him for choosing us and setting us apart, granting us faith in Christ that our sins would be forever forgiven. Well, may God receive our thanksgiving for what He has done for us today. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we just want to thank You, Lord, for what Peter has written to unfold before our eyes this incredible grace of God. The grace that has chosen us before the foundations of the world. The grace that sent the Holy Spirit in time to start His sanctifying work of setting us apart for salvation. Working that new heart within us. Giving us repentance and faith that we might see our sin and believe in Jesus Christ and then receive the incredible gift of the complete and total forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed in the past and present and future. And how can we respond to such grace but to just fall before You and say, Thank You, Lord. Thank You for the blood of Jesus Christ and help us to live our lives more dedicated to You because of Your grace toward us. So Lord, we give You praise for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.